8. Recession and the Storm Over Say's Law We come now to a final critical question about Say's Law. Why did the storm over the law appear only in two massive clusters? For the timing of the swirling controversy over the law is no accident. J.B. Say coined the law in 1803, and James Mill brought it to Britain in 1808, converting Ricardo and his disciples. But why was there no particular controversy over the law until much later? Specifically, the storm erupted in 1819, when the French-Swiss economist Jean-Charles-Léonard Simon de Sismondi, 1773-1842, published his New Principles of Political Economy. Sismondi's book was followed the next year by the Reverend Thomas Robert Malthus, 1766-1834, Principles of Political Economy, 1820. The odd point is that both these men had been ardent Smithians for two decades. Why publish these heretical, under-consumptionist views at virtually the same moment? Sismondi's aristocratic Florentine family had settled in France only as Huguenots to be driven by persecution to settle in Geneva, the Calvinist heartland. Sismondi was born in Geneva, the son of a Calvinist clergyman. When the radical influence of the French Revolution reached Geneva, the Sismondis moved to London, where young Sismondi had a chance to study and participate in English business affairs. Sismondi settled down as a farmer in Tuscany in the late 1790s, publishing a physiocratic tract on Tuscan agriculture in 1801. Soon after, he became an ardent follower of Adam Smith and published his two-volume Smithian work on commercial wealth in Geneva in the same year, 1803, that Say published his famous treatise. While Say skyrocketed to influence and fame, Sismondi's work was ignored and remained totally unknown outside France. Perhaps resentment at this fate played a role in Sismondi's radical conversion, embodied in his new principles. But the timing, the prompting for this conversion, was critical— namely the end in 1815 of a generation of massive war and inflation in Europe, led quickly and inevitably to a post-war deflation and depression. Recessions, especially on such a grand scale, were new phenomena in Europe. There was, therefore, no body of theoretical explanation, and hence the typical business cry of glut or overproduction struck a chord among many observers. In the case of Sismondi, it led him straight away and permanently into a thoroughgoing and lifelong statism, including the advocacy of a comprehensive welfare state a deep hostility to capitalism and the factory system, and a call for return to a simple agrarian economy. In the second edition of his New Principles in 1827, Sismondi, in his preface, proclaims the new economics or new liberalism, which invokes government intervention instead of laissez-faire. Sismondi was offered a professorship of political economy at the University of Vilna on the strength of his first book. 
the new principles brought him an offer from the Sorbonne. But Sismondi preferred to remain in Geneva, churning out a remarkably prolific series of historical works, including a 16-volume history of the Italian republics in the Middle Ages and a 31-volume history of the French, and tending to the life of a gentleman farmer. On his farm, he fought against overproduction in his own dotty way, making sure that production would be as low as possible by choosing the feeblest workers for employment on the farm, and deliberately having his house repaired by an incompetent worker. One wonders why he did not go all the way in his living the exemplary life of underproduction and stop working or producing altogether. Thoroughly embittered at the lack of recognition of his socialistic views, Sismondi wrote shortly before his death in 1842, I leave this world without having made the slightest impression, and nothing will be done. Would that he had been right. Far more of an impact at the time was made by the simultaneous conversion to underconsumptionism by the Reverend Malthus, Malthus, son of an aristocratic country gentleman, graduated from Cambridge with honors in mathematics and was ordained in the Anglican clergy. After serving as a fellow of a college in Cambridge, Malthus became a country curate, writing his famous Essay on Population in 1798. Malthus was more than the gloomy population theorist that made his name. He was also an ardent Smithian economist, in 1804, Malthus became the first academic economist in England, taking up a chair of history and political economy at the new, small East India College of Haleybury, established by the East India Company to train future employees. Not only was he the first, Malthus was to remain the only academic political economist in England for the next two decades. Malthus was a firm friend of Ricardo, and his break with the Smith-Ricardo tradition on underconsumption did not mar their close friendship. The controversy gave rise to a famous correspondence between them, and when Ricardo died in 1823, he left Malthus a small legacy as a token of their camaraderie. More important is the fact that Malthus lost interest in his underconsumptionist heresy after 1824, and quickly reverted to being a leader of Smithian classical economics. Clearly, the reason for Malthus' loss of interest was the fact that Britain recovered from the post-Napoleonic Depression after 1823, and the first storm over Say's law was over. Despite the fact that Malthus' interest in his underconsumption theory was generated and maintained solely by the post-war recession, his doctrine was, oddly enough, not a cyclical theory at all, but an alleged tendency of free markets to a permanent depression. It should also be noted that Malthus was not worried about savings leaking out into hoarding and remaining unspent. He was an overproductionist as well as an underconsumptionist, so that invested savings only made matters worse by increasing production. If commodities are already so plentiful that an adequate portion of them is not profitably consumed, to save capital can only be still further to increase the plenty of commodities, 
and still further to lower already low profits. While Say, in reply to critics, did not, of course, come up with a full-fledged theory to explain the general recession and overproduction in relation to a profitable selling price, he did offer some remarkably prescient insights which have been completely overlooked by historians, perhaps because they were presented in his letters to Malthus rather than in his treatise. First, Say takes up the post-war depression in the United States. For Malthus had claimed in response to Say that since the United States enjoyed low taxes and free markets, their absence could not be the reason for the glut suffered there. Say very sensibly attributes the basic problems in the United States to the great prosperity that country had enjoyed as a neutral during most of the Napoleonic Wars so that, unburdened by blockade, its exports and its commerce enjoyed unusual prosperity. Thus, with the end of the wars in 1815 and the swift return of European maritime trade in both hemispheres, the United States was found to have over-expanded its mercantile products and, in contrast, under-produced agricultural or manufactured goods. So, in a deep sense, the problem is not general overproduction, but an overproduction of some goods and underproduction of others. What the United States is suffering from, then, is underproduction of these other goods. The Americans could have used the increased production to exchange for more of the goods offered by the resurgent European maritime trade. Prophetically, Say predicted that a few years more and their American industry altogether will form a mass of productions, amongst which will be found articles fit to make profitable returns or at least profits, which the Americans will employ in the purchase of European commodities. And then, Americans and Europeans will each produce whatever they are best and most efficient at. Those commodities which the Europeans succeed in making at least expense will be carried to America, and those which the American soil and industry succeed in creating at a lower rate than others will be brought back. The nature of the demand will determine the nature of the productions. Each nation will employ itself in preference about those productions in which they have the greatest success that is, which they produce at least expense, and exchanges mutually and permanently advantageous will be the result. And how about European business? What is the problem there? Why is it depressed? Here, Say put his finger on the heart of the problem. Costs of production multiplied to excess. In short, the problem with the European Depression was not that there was a general overproduction, but that entrepreneurs had bid up costs of production, factor prices, too high, so that consumers were not willing to purchase the products at prices high enough to cover costs. The problem, in fact, was neither the producing of too many goods nor not buying enough, but a bidding up of costs to too high a level. Say goes on to say that these excessive costs created disorders in the production, distribution, and consumption of value produced, 
disorders which frequently bring into the market quantities greater than the want, keeping back those that would sell and whose owner would employ their price in the purchase of the former. In short, the bidding up of excess costs in some way distorted the production structure so as to cause a massive overproduction of some goods and an underproduction of others. After these passages, pregnant with hints of the later Austrian theory of the trade cycle, Say unfortunately goes off on a tangent in ascribing the excess costs to the taxation of industry and the market. But then he returns with a remarkably perceptive passage, attributing seeming superabundance to massive ignorance and error on the part of the entrepreneurs. This superabundance depends also upon the ignorance of producers or merchants of the nature and extent of the want in the places to which they send their commodities. In later years there have been a number of hazardous speculations on account of the many fresh connections with different nations. There was everywhere a general failure of that calculation which was requisite to a good result. In short, the problem centers on a general failure of entrepreneurial forecasting and calculation, leading to what turns out to be an excessive bidding up of costs. Unfortunately, Say does not pursue this crucial point to query why such an unusual entrepreneurial failure should have taken place. But he does go on to anticipate von Hayek's important point about entrepreneurs and producers employing the market as a learning experience to become better at estimating costs and demands on the market. Say writes, but because many things have been ill done, does it follow that it is impossible, with better instruction, to do better? I dare predict that as the new connections grow old, and as reciprocal wants are better appreciated, the excess of commodities will everywhere cease, and that a mutual and profitable intercourse will be established. With the recovery of Europe from the post-war depression, Say's law, at least in the rather vulgarized form adopted by the British classical school, became absorbed into the mainstream of economic thought, and was challenged only by cranks and crackpots who properly constituted what Keynes later called the underworld of economics. These denizens were resurrected by John Maynard Keynes in his General Theory, which, written during the depths of another and even more intense depression, 1936, hailed them all, from Malthus to later underconsumptionists and to the egregious German-Argentinian merchant Silvio Gesell, 1862-1930, who urged that the government force everyone to spend money in a brief period of time after receiving it. Gassell's objective, as in the case of the most flagrant money cranks, was to lower the rate of interest to zero, a goal Keynes was later to echo in his call for the euthanasia of the rentier, bondholder. It is perhaps fitting that this gazelle, whom Keynes called the strange, unduly neglected prophet, capped his dubious career by becoming the finance minister of the short-lived revolutionary Soviet Republic of Bavaria in 1919.
Cain's own doctrine followed in the line of Malthus and the others, except that underspending in general was substituted for underconsumption as the allegedly critical economic problem. Keynes made a denunciation of Say's law the centerpiece of his system. In stating it, Keynes badly vulgarized and distorted the law, leaving out the central role of price adjustments, and had the law saying simply that total spending on output will equal total incomes received in production. Since Keynes' day, economists have managed to obfuscate Say's rather simple notion, with a welter of turgid discussions of Say's alleged principle or identity, made all the more obscure by a plentiful use of mathematics, a form of alleged explication particularly out of place when dealing with such an anti-mathematical theorist as J.B. Say. 9. The Theory of Money Say's excellent discussion of money, like most of the rest of his doctrine, has been grievously neglected by historians of thought. He begins by setting forth a theory of how money originates that was later to be developed in a famous article by Carl Menger and would form the basis of the first chapter in every money and banking text for generations. Money, he pointed out, originates out of barter. To facilitate exchanges and overcome the difficulties of barter, people on the market begin to use particularly marketable commodities as media of exchange. Specifically, under barter, everyone, in order to buy a product, must find someone who desires his own specific product, and this soon becomes very difficult. Thus, the hungry cutler must offer the baker his knives for bread. Perhaps the baker has knives enough, but wants a coat. He is willing to purchase one of the tailors with his bread, but the tailor wants not bread, but butcher's meat, and so on, to infinity. How to overcome this problem of what later came to be called the double coincidence of wants by finding a more generally marketable commodity which the seller will take in exchange. By way of getting over this difficulty, the cutler, finding he cannot persuade the baker to take an article he does not want, will use his best endeavors to have a commodity to offer which the baker will be able readily to exchange again for whatever he may happen to need. If there exist in the society any specific commodity that is in general request, not merely on account of its inherent utility, but likewise on account of the readiness with which it is received in exchange for the necessary articles of consumption, that commodity is precisely what the cutler will try to barter his knives for because he has learnt from experience that its possession will procure him without any difficulty by a second act of exchange, bread, or any article he may wish for. That commodity is precisely the money in that society. Say then goes on into a by now familiar analysis of which commodities are most likely to be chosen on the market as monies. A money commodity must have a high inherent value, that is, value in its pre-monetary use. 
It must also be physically easily divisible, preserving a proportionate quota of its value when divided. It should have a high value per unit weight so that it will be both scarce and valuable, and easily portable, and it must be durable so it can be retained as value for a long time. Of course, once a commodity is chosen as a general medium of exchange, its value becomes much higher than it had been in the pre-monetary state. Say follows the continental tradition of assimilating money to all other commodities. That is, the value of money, as of all other commodities, is determined by the interaction of its supply and its demand. Its value, its purchasing power on the market, moves directly with its demand and inversely with its supply. While he lacked the marginal approach, Say pointed the way to the eventual integration of a utility theory of goods with money. Since money, too, is an object of desire, its utility is the basis for its demand on the market. Say also criticized Ricardo and the British classical school for attempting to explain the value of money not by utility or supply and demand, but, as in the case of all other goods, by its cost of production. In the case of money, only the supply of money and not the demand was considered important, and the supply was supposedly governed by the cost of mining gold or silver. Say was a hard-money man, insistent that all paper must be instantly convertible into specie. Irredeemable paper expands rapidly in quantity and depreciates the value of the currency, and Say pointed to the recent issue by the revolutionary French government of the Assignat, inconvertible paper that depreciated eventually to zero. Say was thus able to analyze one of the first examples of runaway inflation. If the national money is deteriorated, it becomes an object to get rid of it in any way and exchange it for commodities. This was one of the causes of the prodigious circulation that took place during the progressive depreciation of the French assignat. Everybody was anxious to find some employment for a paper currency whose value was hourly depreciating. It was only taken to be reinvested immediately, and one might have supposed it burnt the fingers it passed through. Say also pointed out that inflation systematically injures creditors for the benefit of debtors. Say was highly critical of the Smith-Ricardo yen to find an absolute and invariable measure of the value of money. He pointed out that while the relative values of money to other prices can be estimated, they are not susceptible to measurement. The value of gold or silver or coin is not fixed, but variable, as is that of any commodity. One of the splendid parts of Say's theory of money was his trenchant critique of bimetallism. He was insistent that the government's fixing the ratio of the weights of the two precious metals was doomed to failure, and only caused perpetual fluctuations and shortages of one or the other metals. 
Say called for parallel standards, that is, for freely fluctuating exchange rates between gold and silver. As he pointed out, gold and silver must be left to find their own mutual level in the transactions in which mankind may think proper to employ them. And again, the relative value of gold and silver must be left to regulate itself, for any attempt to fix it would be in vain. While at one point Say inconsistently looks with favor on Ricardo's plan for a central bank redeeming its notes only in gold bullion and not even coin, the general thrust of his discussion is for ultra-hard money. On the whole, Say comes out for 100% specie money, for a money where paper is only a certificate backed fully by gold or silver, a medium composed entirely of either silver or gold, bearing a certificate, pretending to none but its real intrinsic value, and consequently exempt from the caprice of legislation, would hold out such advantages to every department of commerce that it would be adopted by all nations. So insistent was Say on separating money from government that he called for changing the national names of monies to actual units of weight of gold or silver, for example, grams instead of francs. In that way there would be a genuinely worldwide commodity money, and the government could not impose legal tender laws for paper money or debase currency standards. The entire current monetary system, say writes happily, would thenceforth fall to the ground, a system replete with fraud, injustice, and robbery, and moreover so complicated as rarely to be thoroughly understood even by those who make it their profession. It would ever after be impossible to effect an adulteration of the coin, in short, Say concludes eagerly, the coinage of money would become a matter of perfect simplicity, a mere branch of metallurgy. Indeed, the only role that Say would inconsistently reserve for government is a monopoly of the coinage, since that coinage was to be this simple branch of metallurgy that government could presumably not cripple or destroy. There is not a great deal of analysis of banking in Say's treatise, but despite his aberration in being favorable to the Ricardo plan for a central bank bullion standard, the main thrust of his discussion is, once again, to separate government from bank credit expansion, either by a 100% reserve banking system or by freely competitive banking, which would presumably approximate that condition. Thus Say writes highly favorably of the 100% reserve banks of Hamburg and Amsterdam. Free banks of circulation, issuing banknotes, he holds to be far better than a monopoly central bank, for the competition obliges each of them to court the public favor by a rivalship of accommodation and solidity and if these banks are not to be based on 100% specie reserve, which Say indicates would be the best system, competition would keep them investing in sound, very short-term credit, which could easily be used to redeem their banknotes.
10. The State and Taxation Amidst the morass of bland economic writings on taxation, Jean-Baptiste Say stands out like a beacon light. It is true that he was unusually devoted, even in that generally liberal era, to laissez-faire and the rights of private property, and only waffled a very few times in that creed. But for some reason, most laissez-faire and libertarian thinkers in history have not really considered taxation to be an invasion of the rights of private property. In J.B. Say, however, an implacable hostility to taxation pervades his work. He tended to make it responsible for all the economic evils of society, even, as we have seen, for recessions and depressions. Say's discussion of taxation was brilliant and unique, and yet, as with almost all his work, it has received no attention whatever from the historians of economic thought. In contrast to almost all other economists, Say had an astonishingly clear-sighted view of the true nature of the state and of its taxation. In Say, there was no mystical quest for some truly voluntary state, nor any view of the state as a benign, semi-business organization supplying services to a public grateful for its numerous benefits. No, Say saw clearly that the services government indubitably supplies are to itself and to its favorites, and that all government spending is therefore consumption spending by the politicians and the bureaucracy. He also saw that the tax funds for that spending are extracted by coercion at the expense of the taxpaying public. As Say points out, the government exacts from a taxpayer the payment of a given tax in the shape of money. To meet this demand, the taxpayer exchanges part of the products at his disposal for coin, which he pays to the tax gatherers. The money is then spent for the government's consumption needs, so that the portion of wealth which passes from the hands of the taxpayer into those of the tax-gatherer is destroyed and annihilated. Were it not for taxes, the taxpayer would have spent his own money on his own consumption. As it is, the state enjoys the satisfaction resulting from that consumption. Say goes on to attack the prevalent notion that tax monies are no burden on the economy, since they simply return to the community via the expenditures of government. Say is indignant. This is gross fallacy, but one that has been productive of infinite mischief, inasmuch as it has been the pretext for a great deal of shameless waste and dilapidation. The value paid to government by the taxpayer is given without equivalent or return. It is expended by the government in the purchase of personal service, of objects of consumption. Thus, in contrast to the naive Smith's purblind assumption that taxation always confers proportional benefit, we see J.B. Say treating taxation as very close to sheer robbery. Indeed, at this point, Say revealingly quotes with approval Robert Hamilton's likening of government to a large-scale robber. Hamilton had been refuting this very point. 
taxation is harmless because the money is recirculated into the economy by the state. Hamilton had likened such impudence to the forcible entry of a robber into a merchant's house, who should take away his money and tell him he did him no injury, for the money, or part of it, would be employed in purchasing the commodities he dealt in, upon which he would receive a profit. Hamilton might have added a Keynesian touch, that the robber's spending would benefit his victim many-fold by the benign operations of the magical multiplier. Say then comments on Hamilton's point that the encouragement afforded by the public expenditure is precisely analogous. Say then bitterly goes on to denounce the false and dangerous conclusion of writers who claim that public consumption, government expenditures, increases general wealth. But the damage is not really in the writing. If such principles were to be found only in books, and had never crept into practice, one might suffer them without care or regret to swell the monstrous heap of printed absurdity. But unfortunately, these precepts have been put into practice by the agents of public authority, who can enforce error and absurdity at point of the bayonet or mouth of the cannon, in short, once again, Say sees the uniqueness of government as the exercise of force and coercion, particularly in the way it extracts its revenue. Taxation, then, is the coercive imposition of a burden upon the members of the public for the benefit of the government, or, more precisely, of the ruling class in command of the government. Thus Say writes, Taxation is the transfer of a portion of the national products from the hands of individuals to those of the government, for the purpose of meeting the public consumption or expenditure. It is virtually a burden imposed upon individuals, either in a separate or corporate character by the ruling power, for the purpose of supplying the consumption it may think proper to make at their expense. In short, an impost, in the literal sense. He is not impressed with the apologetic notion, properly ridiculed in later years by Schumpeter, that all society somehow voluntarily pays taxes for the general benefit. Instead, taxes are a burden coercively imposed on society by the ruling power. Neither is, say, impressed if the taxes are voted by the legislature. To him, this does not make taxes any more voluntary, for what avails it that taxation is imposed by consent of the people or their representatives, if there exists in the state a power that by its acts can leave the people no alternative but consent? Moreover, taxation cripples rather than stimulates production, since it robs people of resources that they would rather use differently. Taxation deprives the producer of a product which he would otherwise have the option of deriving a personal gratification from if consumed, or of turning to profit if he preferred to devote it to a useful employment. Therefore, the subtraction of a product must needs diminish instead of augmenting productive power. 
Say engages in an instructive critique of Ricardo, which reveals the crucial difference over the latter's long-run equilibrium approach and the great difference in their respective attitudes toward taxation. Ricardo had maintained in his principles that since the rate of return on capital is the same in every branch of industry, taxation cannot really cripple capital. For, as Say puts it, the extinction of one branch by taxation must needs be compensated by the product of some other, towards which the industry and capital thrown out of employ will naturally be diverted. Here is Ricardo, blind to the real processes at work in the economy, stubbornly identifying a static comparison of long-run equilibrium states with the real world. Say replies forcefully and trenchantly. I answer that whenever taxation diverts capital from one mode of employment to another, it annihilates the profits of all who are thrown out of employ by the change, and diminishes those of the rest of the community. For industry may be presumed to have chosen the most profitable channel. I will go further and say that a forcible diversion of the current or production annihilates many additional sources of profit to industry. Besides, it makes a vast difference to the public prosperity whether the individual or the state be the consumer. A thriving and lucrative branch of industry promotes the creation and accumulation of new capital whereas, under the pressure of taxation, it ceases to be lucrative. Capital diminishes gradually instead of increasing. Wealth and production decline in consequence, and prosperity vanishes, leaving behind the pressure of unremitting taxation. Say then adds a charming sentence, taking a praxeological slap at Ricardo's fondness for what might be called his method of utterly unrealistic verbal mathematics. Ricardo has endeavored to introduce the unbinding maxims of geometrical demonstration in the science of political economy. There is no method less worthy of reliance. Say then goes on to heap scorn on the argument that taxes can positively stimulate people to work harder and produce more. Work harder, he replies, to furnish funds to allow the state to tyrannize still further over you? Thus, to use the expedient of taxation as a stimulative to increased production is to redouble the exertions of the community for the sole purpose of multiplying its privations rather than its enjoyments. For if increased taxation be applied to the support of a complex, overgrown, and ostentatious internal administration, or of a superfluous and disproportionate military establishment, that may act as a drain of individual wealth, and of the flower of the national youth, and an aggressor upon the peace and happiness of domestic life. Will not this be paying as dearly for a grievous public nuisance as if it were a benefit of the first magnitude? What, then, is the bottom line? What is Say's basic prescription for taxation? Indeed, what is his prescription for total public spending? 
Basically, it is what one might expect from a man who believed the state to be a grievous public nuisance and an aggressor upon the peace and happiness of domestic life. Quite simply, the best scheme of public finance is to spend as little as possible, and the best tax is always the lightest. In the next sentence, he amends the latter clause to say, the best taxes, or rather, those that are least bad. In short, J.B. Say, unique among economists, offered us a theory of total government spending as well as a theory of overall taxation. And that theory was a lucid and remarkable one, amounting to, that government is best, or least bad, that spends and taxes least. But the implications of such a doctrine are stunning, whether or not Say understood them or followed them through. For if, in the Jeffersonian phrase, that government is best that governs least, then it follows that least least is zero, and therefore, as Thoreau and Benjamin R. Tucker were later to point out, that government is best that governs, or, in this case, spends and taxes, not at all.